Hello, welcome to a new episode of Over Morrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today we're here with Father Paul Butler, the rector and parish priest of St. Paul's in Deptford in London, and a sacramental socialist. We will talk with Father Paul to continue our discussion of Christian theology, which we began last time when talking about Pavel Florensky. But today we will take it to another more political direction. And first of all, dear Father, thank you for coming on our podcast. Pleasure. It's a great pleasure to be here. So last time, as you know, we looked at a few of the theories developed by Pavel Florensky. As I was saying, he was a mathematician, a scientist, an engineer, a theologian, a philosopher, but he always identified primarily, and he said of himself, that he was a priest. Why is it so important to be a priest? But what does it mean to be a priest? It's a good question. A priest is someone who is called by God to be a person who stands for Christ and tries to help other people follow Christ and to be part of his body, the body of Christ, which we call the church. One very interesting way of thinking about this might be to say that a priest is like is, is someone who helps people to navigate. There's that sense that when you're navigating, you're putting out to sea and, and that you're not just in harbour. So there is always that sense of journey and there is the sense of whilst you're on the journey, um, you learn and are shaped and changed. So a priest's job is to, um, is to say prayers and to celebrate sacraments and to be, in a sense, a sacrament. A sacrament in the church is... Um, one way of thinking about it is to say that it is an, an outward and a visible sign of an inward and a spiritual grace. So there's something about um, public and private. And a priest's job is to help people not just to, um, to navigate the structures, but also to navigate the soul and spirit, one might say, to look at not just seeing how the world can become a more just and holy place, but also how, how in one's own life one might become a person who is more loving and merciful and forgiving and kind to be what you want, what, what it is you want to see for others. And, and for, for the Christian, the central rule is always love. And love requires that you love your enemy, but love does not mean that you accept your enemy's injustice. Love might require that your enemy changes um, their behaviour so that they are no longer acting in an unjust way. So there is always built into this navigation um, risk and conflict and struggle. And maybe there is also that remembrance that you don't navigate on your own, you navigate within the tradition you navigate with maps and with um, with the codes that have have gone before you. So a priest's job is also not just to um, to be a, a, in a sense a sort of a, a petty messiah, but to, to be someone who um, speaks out of the tradition which has been handed on, which of course comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. The Christians will say the Old Testament and the New Testament, which has got the Gospels in it, the stories of Jesus, and then the letters of 
um, St. Paul and of, and of some other early Christian writers, and 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 which ends um, with the book of Revelation, which is a book about um, a hope and of of, of uh, and and a new society after the end of all oppression. But priests are of different kinds, also within Christianity. For example, you are an Anglo-Catholic. Uh, Florensky was a Russian Orthodox priest. I'm curious to know to what extent these divisions make sense from a religious standpoint. I'm, um, I'm an Anglican in, uh, in the Church of England, and obviously I speak from a place, and we all speak from a place where we're born, You know, it often depends, you know, which football team we support or um, what language we speak as our first language or whatever it might be. I think so much of where we are is, is a historical, um, you know, it's an accident in a sense. It's where, it's where we are, where we're from. It's, and I think what I would always want to say um, is that the Christian task is always the task for unity, the task to bring people together. And that's not just a task that's about um, other Christians or other priests or other, other people in other churches, but it's also a task that's about the unity of peoples of all faiths or no faith. Um, the word that we use in the church is ecumenical or ecumenical, which has a sense of being about all of the world, all human creatures, and, and to see them within diversity and, and, and unity. So I think If you start with an eschatology which says, in the end all shall be well, apocatastases is one of the ways of thinking about this, out of the, comes out of the orthodox tradition, but is a very ancient Christian, Christian theology, which in a sense looks right back to creation and says, God creates the world good, and in the end all shall be good. So there is just that sense that the human task is to live, is to live well and peacefully, and to live with that diversity and that pluralism. One might say it's more like light traveling through a prism rather than um, wanting to see the glass, you know, thrown and shattered and dispersed and destroyed. Um, it's, I, I think that's the image I would, I would want to go for, light traveling through a prism. One of the most impressive aspects of Florensky theology, I think, at least to my mind, is this particular combination of an ambition that is revolutionary, but an attitude that is incredibly gentle. And this reminds me of another form of Christianity, Christian theology, known as liberation theology. I know that you um, were very influenced by this form of theology. So could you please tell us more about it? Well, liberation theology comes out of the experience of um, South and Central America, um, fundamentally out of um, countries like Brazil and, um, and Peru and Argentina um, and El Salvador, where terrible oppression and injustice uh, caused by, um, well, you know, all, all, the, all the usual reasons, imperialism, capitalism, um, the great beast out of the United States of America and so on and um, working with the oligarchs of those countries to totally oppress people. And priests and um, lay, lay workers um, working amongst the poorest communities um, began to develop um, a, new, a new way of doing theology, which was in 
relationship to what has what has gone before and is and is in um, total relationship um, and and intimacy with um, the the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew prophets. This theology, um, which was coined, the word liberation theology was coined by um, a Peruvian uh, Dominican called Gustavo Gutierrez, who uh, is still alive now, um, and he's a very old man. Um, Gutierrez fundamentally says that liberation theology is what he calls a critical reflection on praxis in the light of the word of God. It's about it's about taking a preferential option for the poor to be alongside and to see the liberation of the poor as being about the liberation of humankind, not just about seeing development and a sort of a sense of let's make things better for people, but in a sense, let's renew everything. Let's see the world from the way it looks from the underside. Let's look at the world um, from what it might mean to truly be baptised into the, an inclusive and democratic sacrament from which um, the world um, looks like a place of freedom and salvation in history, not just um, a kind of a hope of pie in the sky when you die. Um, the kingdom of God is a key biblical um, idea, and it's the, it's the fundamental message of Jesus. It's, the, it's his regulative principle, one might say. And the kingdom of God is about justice and peace and and a new society. And so liberation theologians look at all of the key issues of theology, from prayer and the sacraments, um, right through to um, ethics and, and justice and, and, um, and, and all of that, and see a new way of, of living and how the Christian gospel might, 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 might be and, and lived out. So praxis is the key thing. It's orthopraxis rather than, than, than just... Um, you know, thinking about things, it's getting on and doing them. Feet on the ground theology. I see this emphasis on, on practice, on, on praxis and on an active engagement uh, with life, very central to, to many forms of theology and liberation theology, as you say, is one of them. Um, it's also connected with political ideas, the idea, for example, of communism and socialism being sure. very close to early Christianity. Sure, yes. Uh, to what extent do you think it's possible to justify these ideas? Are they some sort of contemporary Im impositions over an ancient form? Or do they really come out of the form itself of Christianity? I think that, that fundamentally, Christianity is a religion of, um, of communism and of equality. And, um, and, and in order to live the good life, um, now, that's not about... Um, necessarily about some of the words and, and some of the ways that we've sometimes thought about these things because of our own history in the last, you know, hundred or so years. I'm not saying that, that Jesus was um, in favour of, um, of Stalinism or something like that. But it is incredibly interesting to note that his first ever sermon, he announces that the gospel is good news to the poor and he talks about liberation for captives Um, he is followed by the poorest of the poor and the most the, the most destitute and pushed out people in his in much of his public teaching and his public life. Um, he creates a new community where there is a kind of an open and a kind of an open commensality, you know, where the rules no longer apply. Um, you, you know, the poorest can find themselves there with with anybody. And um, there is a kind of equality that comes 
from this 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 practice, this way of life. When when God creates um, the universe, He doesn't create um, uh, you know um, a, a kind of an unjust unjust order. Um, and there is a sense that for Christians that 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 is the always the Christian future. The Christian future is always that future, um, which is um, both one might say in the garden, but also in the kingdom and the city of God. Um, it is a looking back and a looking forward. I think as well, um, I, I would want to say that the response in, of, of the first Christian communities was to lift together, share everything, and to um, ensure that, that the needs of everybody were properly met. And this is borne out in the early practice and the early rules of life of Christian communities. In fact, the rule of St. Benedict very clearly takes on this kind of an idea and wants to say that um, that private property and the common private property is a, is a terrible thing, and the common life is the way is the way to live your life. And let's remain with with Saint Benedict, away from the street, so to say, and into another space that belongs to um, to many religions, including Christianity, mm-hmm. the monastery. Yes, Florensky yes. operated often in close contact with monasteries and with the monks working there and praying there. But nowadays, I think we almost forget that there still are monks <laughs> in the mm-hmm. world. But what does a oh, monk yes. do in the 21st century? Uh, what lessons can we take from the microcosm of the monasteries? For example, if you want to revolutionize the macrocosm <laughs> of society. Well, I mean, that's a, that's another massive question. We could probably spend hours discussing it. I mean, in a nutshell, I would say that what the monastery does is that it models some of this way of life and is also modeling that um, it is possible to live a life in community and a life um, that is lived not um, for oneself um, in order to make private profit and to build up one's own empire, but it is that the, the meaning of life is in sharing and in praying and in communion with God and the work of God. In fact, is the word that's used in St. Benedict's rule of life, you know, the, the, you know, the work of God is, is this work of prayer and service. Work is prayer, prayer is work. Now, I think one of those interesting insights into, um, into this has, has come, and it's probably well known to some of, some of our listeners, Um, Alistair McIntyre um, wrote a very interesting book called After Virtue. Um, and he ends the book by talking about um, the old dark ages and the new dark ages in which we, which we are living in now. And, and, he, wrote, and, and, and he writes um, that um, he says that um, he talks about this construction of new forms of community within which the moral life can be sustained Um, so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. And he ends up by talking about and saying that, um, you know, that we're not waiting anymore for Godot, um, but rather for a doubtless very different St. Benedict. And I think that there is just that sense that, that what, what the religious communities do is that they act as a kind of a countersign to rapacious capitalist exploitation, destruction, um, And um, not only the monasteries, but the religious who live outside of monasteries, the, the, the friars and the religious, the Franciscans in particular, Carmelites, the Dominicans, both men and women in these orders. Um, 
In fact, I find it very interesting that um, at the end of um, Tony Negre's uh, book Empire, um, he cites Francis of Assisi as being um, the, the, the hope of the future life of a communist militant, um, who in a sense lives joyously with, with all the good things of, of the earth and, um, and, um, and, 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 and talks about, um, you know, simplicity and love and innocence um and um and, and ends by 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 talking almost using milan kundera's um a, a book title the irrepressible lightness of the joy of being communist i think it's very interesting that characters like francis and benedict are still our dialogue partners and particularly francis i think is often very well known in the wider society as someone for whom even if they can't cope with christianity normally they quite like St. Francis. <laughs> and I can see in the way you've been talking about uh, priesthood, Christian theology uh, and monasteries, this focus on life, which is very similar to that that Pavel Florensky proposes in his writing. And religion often has to do with events of life, as in especially birth, yes. but also death. And yes. as you know, this podcast is dedicated in particular to what happens when the world form of a civilization, mm -hmm. when our idea of reality dies and a new one is born. So in your experience, do you see any parallels between the traumatic experience um, of an individual being born and dying or witnessing the life and death of others and what happens at the level of civilizations when we see our own world dying and a new world coming to be? And because of your experience dealing with this daily, what kind of advice as a priest would you give to those who have to deal with this individually and collectively? I think there's, th there are many things to say. I, I think a couple of them would simply be um, the Christian story is of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the, the hope of life is not that it ends Uh, uh, when when someone's mortal life ends but 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 that eternal life continues and we could probably debate what that means for a long time but there is there i think there's a there's a there's a, a discussion in some in, in the um in the karamatsov brothers by dostoevsky where where i think the secret police are talking and, and then one of them says then there's these christian socialists you know they, they're very tricky people and there's this sense that you know, people who have hope are very difficult to stop. And I think that Christianity, um, because it is a religion based upon hope, you know, it's when someone is dying, it is always that sense that, that you know, we, we weep and we hope. And we hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. And for Christians, I think this, this mystery um, of the life of the age to come is also something that they experience in the present age. Because Christians, sometimes people think that Christianity believes in, you know, another universe, another planet where people go when they die. But Christianity at its heart has, a, has what we would call a realized eschatology, a sense that, that the kingdom of God that Jesus comes to bring begins now and it continues. It's now and not yet but it is also possible to taste it. As, as the, uh, the Brazilian liberation theologian Ruba Malvis calls it, he calls it the aperitif of, you know, the aperitif of the future. Um, 
I, 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 you're Italian, you, you'll have an aperitivo. Um, there is that sense that you taste it, you know, you taste and see. So, um, I, I, you know, I have been with a lot of people in my life who, who have been dying. I've seen people through, through those moments of death. Um, and there is something about a beautiful death and something about a death in hope and a death um, without fear. Um, and I think for, a, for, for the Christian as well, there is always that sense that that we have these, um, you know, we, you know, we live through these traumatic times. I mean, one of the most fundamental theological books that probably everyone's heard of and not everyone's read is Saint Augustine's City of God, which he writes at the end of the almost like the end of an end, an end of an era. You know, that sense of the end of end of end of things, and people thought that might be the end of everything, and and Augustine is doing his contextual theology he's he's writing out of the end of this and writing about the christian hope and he ends up and and it's just really interesting to note that some of his most famous passages towards the end of the city of god are about how an assembly of people live together how they share life together even quoted by the new u.s president in his inauguration speech yesterday after Augustine wrote that book, unfortunately, a few hundred years followed in which uh, many things happened, not all very happy. And we oh, lost yeah. most of the books from antiquity that we used to have, thankfully not St. Augustine's City of God. But this library doesn't run that risk because this library doesn't have any real books on its shelves, only recommendations. And so I would like mm -hmm. to ask you to join me. Uh, and it is the usual final question in, in every interview to add some books to the library for the day after tomorrow. What would you recommend that we add? Well, I think some of the books I've, I've referenced in what I've been talking about, I would certainly have to say, let's put a copy of the Holy Bible in there, but let's make sure we've got one um, with the Greek text and also the Hebrew text and the Aramaic text um, so that um, we, we don't lose, um, we know, so that for, for, for people who... Um, Who, who don't speak English, shall we say, if I was putting it in there. So, so let's put a translation, um, a good translation of the, of the scriptures with all the books accepted by all the different churches and also a Greek, Greek and Hebrew text of there. Let's put a copy of the Rule of St. Benedict. Um, let's definitely have um, Gustavo Gutierrez's famous book, A Theology of Liberation. Um, perhaps let's also put in there... Um, a book by David Bentley Hart called That All Shall Be Saved, which is a very important new book of his talking about apocatastasis. Um, and, um, and maybe a wild card. Well, um, why not Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love? Fantastic. And with that, Father, I would say goodbye for tonight and thank you for having been with us. But I won't say goodbye to the listeners yet, but invite them to follow me to the next episode where we will move away in part from the field of theology proper, certainly, but we will not go too far from it. Our next episode will be dedicated to literature for children and to fables. And we will look at all these things through two books on childhood by the mysterious authors whom I will introduce next time, Elemir Zolla and Cristina Campo. So I hope you'll follow me for the next episode here on Overmorrow's Library from the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye.